You know, I'm very grateful, Wayne, thank you, and for this time. And if you've been around GRX for a little while, you know, wow, we're pretty casual. We're pretty informal. And um, so this is kind of a formal thing for us to do as a family. And I, and I hope that as we, you know, as we participated in this, we'll just remember again that, yes, GRX, we're very significant. God's doing a great work among us. But our church, our community, is a part of a much larger movement that God is doing. And we're Evangelical Covenant. And the Covenant Church started in 1888 by Swedish folks. And we continue to live and recognize that we live in that, in that big arc of history as a Covenant Church. And even longer than that, that we live in that big narrative of what God is doing in the church, in the world, through Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. And so we live in this much, much larger tradition. So with that, let me, um, I got my notes down here for the preaching. I was joking that, uh, I was joking with guys that um, I already have the alarm code for the church. So, but this is a nice touch. This big golden, this big golden key, this big key. Hey, we have been right now studying and continuing to go through the book of John. And if you've been here with us for a little while, you understand that we've been studying John because we're actually wanting to, in this opening season of this kind of new season of me being among you, wanting to say, hey, let's look at what is really central to our lives. Let's look at what's really important for the story of our family and our life together. And that story, the reason why we're here, the reason why we're a church, the reason why we gather on Sunday, the reason why we have small groups, the reason why we do missions, the reason why we do kids camp, the reason why we have club, is because of Jesus Christ. The story of Jesus Christ, what God did in the world, and how we as a people respond to the gracious love of God in Jesus Christ. And so we opened up looking at the story. What is God doing in John? What is God doing? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent the son into the world not to condemn the world, not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ, it's about Jesus. It's what we're doing. It's the central story. And it's that story that I'm wanting us to look at as a community. And so with that, we're studying the book of John. We're reading John. And today, we're going to continue to look at the story of John and encounter Jesus. What is Jesus doing? How is Jesus wanting to transform our lives and who we are? So with that, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to John chapter 6, verse 25 to 35 is what we're going to look at. John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. Last week, what we looked at was the feeding of the 5,000. And that was that story where Jesus took some fish and some bread and broke that and fed 5,000 people. So this passage now comes right 
afterwards, right after Jesus fed all these people. And it's a, it's the central part of this passage is about belief. So I'm going to read the passage and then talk a little bit about belief. What do we believe about Jesus Christ? And what does that mean for us? So John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. Jesus had just traveled on the other side of the lake, and so people go and look for him. And this is where it opens up. John uh, 6, verses 25. When they found him, when the people, when the crowds found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? A pretty natural question. They're like, how'd you get over here? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, that was the loaves and fishes into the big feast. You're looking at me, looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And now there's some sort of metaphor that Jesus is going to use about the bread of life being the bread of life, but really about believing in Jesus. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, and this is the central part of this passage, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's the central work of God. That's the central thing that Jesus is calling people to here, to believe in him. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give us? What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And then Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. It's woven into this metaphor. Don't go after the bread that spoils, but go after the bread, go after the nourishment. Work for the things that lead to eternal life. What are the works? What's the most important thing that God wants me to do? In verse 29, do this, do this. Believe in the one whom he sent. Now, all around us, everywhere, we live in a world surrounded by belief. Everything that we do is predicated on what we believe. Everything. Think about the most mundane thing. Somebody calls you and says, hey, I want to go out to coffee with you. Hey, I want to go meet you over at this coffee shop. You believe that they're actually going to show up there, right? You actually believe they're going to show up. So what do you do? You get ready. You go and get in your car. You show up to that place because you believe that they 
are going to show up. So you behave in such a way that lives into that belief. Every time you're driving on the freeway, I'm sorry, every time you're driving down the the road and you see a traffic light, every time you see a traffic light, do you know that you're recognizing belief? Because you're driving down and your light is green. So what does that mean? It means you have the right of way. Right? You're going to go right through, that, uh, right through that intersection. But what do you also believe about the cross traffic? Stop. You believe that their light is red. And you also believe that they're going to stop. We live in a whole world of belief. We're completely surrounded by belief. We swim in belief. We swim in belief. Now, there's two ways that I want to enter this text for us today. There are two postures. There's two locations. There's two uh, ways that we can hear this passage. One location, one way we can hear this passage is from the perspective and posture of, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in Jesus. I come to GRX because our kids went to VBS. It was a cool place. I've met some neat people. But I'm not really a follower of Jesus. I'm exploring Christianity. I'm exploring Jesus. You might be an agnostic, just looking around. The other way is that you're a Christian, that you already believe in Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. I'm going to get to all the followers of Jesus in just a second. But if you're in the first camp, if you're in the first location where you're just exploring Christianity, let me encourage you to do this. Let me encourage you to hang out with us at GRX for a while. And let me encourage you to read the story of Jesus for yourself. Read the Gospel of John for yourself. Because we believe that there's a lot of things out there that you can believe. There are a lot of philosophies that you can believe. There are a lot of worldviews that you can stand in. There are a lot of political ideologies and even faiths that you can say yes to. But we believe that Jesus Christ is that which will satisfy your deepest needs and your deepest desires. Your deepest things that you hope for when you are there and really wondering about what your life is about. We believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to that. The bread of life, that which sustains us, that which we need to make the whole rest of the world make sense and to make our lives make sense. So if you're exploring Christianity, let me invite you to do this. Look at the story of Jesus. Read the Gospel of John. And read it like you'd read any other book. Just read it, read it from chapter 1, verse 1, and just read it all the way through. And see if who Jesus is there is invitational enough for you to put your life in his hands. All right. Now, for everybody else, if you've already said yes to Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus, you could say, well, the passage says, believe in Jesus, and that's it. I've done that. I checked that off. All right, let's go. Let's go to lunch. Let's go to the bouncy castle. Come on, let's go. Hey, for all of us who have said yes to Jesus, I want to actually have us consider that there's something deeper here about what does it mean for us 
as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to believe in Jesus Christ. And there are a few ways that I want to enter into this with us. We live in a world, we live in a world where we are swimming in all kinds of other competing beliefs. We are surrounded by all these other kind of competing beliefs that are all around us. And I'm going to try to touch on, very quickly, five places where there are competing beliefs that seek to say, hey, believe this about the world rather than believe this about Jesus Christ. And we're going to touch on these things. And I hope that in this, you'll receive this as an invitation to wonder about these things in your own life. Not that they're deeply convicting, not that you're feeling in judgment at all, but that, wow, how do I enter into these arenas? And what do I believe? And the areas of belief are in the arena of work. What do I believe about work? Singleness, relationships, and married life. What do I believe about that? My kids. What do I believe about my kids? Money. What do I believe about money? And then my time. What do I believe about my time? Because I believe that in these areas, there are competing beliefs out there that challenge our belief in Jesus Christ. Let me just take work right off the top. People that we work, we're working people, right? We spend a huge amount of time at work, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours of work. We put the best of who we are at our workplaces. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? What do we believe about work? That we do that. What do we believe? Let me just throw out a couple of ideas. A couple of ideas. This may not be you, but these are people that I know. Right? These are people that I know. Work. Man, at a deep level, who I am and the value that I am as a person is in my work. It's the value of who I am and what I can produce. I need to work because my value is based there. Or because of my job title. I feel good about my job title because of what I, how people ascribe me, how how I'm acclaimed. Or maybe this. Maybe I'm working so hard because of my salary. And if I get that salary, if I'm able to hit that number, man, then I've really arrived then I've really made it as a person. Sometimes they say, you know, people that are successful in school, man, what do we do? You know, you're successful in school, you get good grades, you get all this acclaim, your teachers love you, your parents love you. Actually, your parents get to brag about you with other people's parents. That's really why, right? That's why you get good grades, right? So your parents can brag about you to other people, right? But you kind of get all this benefit. You get all this, like, uplift. What happens when you finish school and you go into the workplace? Some people would say that the new grading system is your income. My self-worth is in my income. My self-worth is, man, I got to work and work and work and work because I'm on this treadmill. I got to work. What would it mean to believe Jesus Christ in your workplace? How would it transform your workplace? If you're on that or you know people that are on that, tempted to play office politics so that they'd be able to get ahead, tempted into these situations of lack of integrity because they're going to try to kind of get a raise. 
What would it mean to have Jesus Christ be the Lord of your work? What's the work of God? To believe in Jesus Christ above all other things. That maybe the reason why you have your job and the reason that you are in your workplace is because Jesus Christ has given you that opportunity to love the people in your office and to build his kingdom in your workplace. So that when you go to work, it's not about all these other beliefs that the world tells you that work needs to be. But you are there because Jesus Christ has placed you there to be his salt and his light in that place to reach out to that coworker who is in trouble and to spend a little time walking with them, praying with them, checking in to see how they're doing. All right, I'm going to go on. That's just work. There's a lot to say about work, but we're going to go on. How about relationships? How do we say, I believe in God in the world of my relationships? There was a movie a while ago now. It had Tom Cruise in it. I think you might, uh, might know this movie, and so I'm just going to give you a little bit of it. There's this scene, and there are these people in an in a elevator, and Tom Cruise is in there, and then these people that are, that, are, that, are, um, that are speaking through sign language, and then they, they sort of do this little exchange, and what gets, com- what gets communicated in that little exchange, it's kind of cute, they kind of do this little thing, and the sign language is like this, it's like this, it's like, they go like this, and then, then they kind of go to like a little circle like this like this around your heart and then it's like they kind of point to themselves and tom cruise is like what is that what is that what does that mean what does that mean and the person that he's with said oh i understand sign language it means you complete me you complete me and they go oh that's so cute it's a, a man and a woman and it's like oh you're so cute you know in relationships we might believe that right you complete me that's such a cute thing. It's such a, it's, you can put it on a little card, give it to somebody. That's not true. That's a belief that our culture gives us that I'm, I'm incomplete if I'm single. And I'm only complete if I'm married. I'm only complete if I'm with somebody else. That's not true. Jesus Christ would say that In Jesus, our life is hidden with him and we are made whole and complete within Jesus Christ. And so in our relationships, there are all these things that push on us, that war on us, that say, man, you're not complete unless you're in a relationship. But how about if Jesus Christ, we bring Jesus Christ into how we understand our relationships and say, hey, Jesus, how do you want me to steward my singleness? Jesus, how do you want me to steward my marriage? If you talk to married people, man, marriage is hard on the other side. Marriage is hard on the other side. And there's sanctification that God wants to do on both sides. But how do I give my singleness over to Jesus? People that are single have a huge advantage over married folks. And that is that you have all of this time. All of this time. God, what do you want me to do with my time? And then, how does that transform how I live and see and relate to other people? There's more about that. 
Let me get on to kids. We got a lot of kids. I'm so happy that the kids are with us today. Kids, I'm really glad that you guys are here with us today in worship today. But how do we have Jesus and believe Jesus for our kids? The temptation in our culture is that we say, wow, it's all up to me to raise my kids. And that's kind of true when they're little. We feed them, we change their diapers, we wash their clothes. It's all up to me. But the subtle belief in that is that, man, I've seen this. I've seen this in the South Bay. I've seen this everywhere. I've seen this in the East Bay. People go, man, that means for our kids, like, it's all up to me. And one way it plays out is I got to get my kids in the very best school. The API, I got to get them in that school. And then what that means is that means I got I to buy this kind of house. And man, we can't afford that. But I got to go there and buy that house. And it's super stressful, super incredibly stressful. And that's all of this world, that's all of this world belief saying, it's up to you. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. What if we believe Jesus Christ for our children? What if we said, Jesus, we love our kids, but we entrust our kids to you because, Jesus, we know that you love our kids more than we can. Because, yeah, we take care of their physical needs, but how about our kids and their souls? What about the spirits that are dwelling in our kids? The longing that we have for our kids to grow up and to have authentic faith and that they themselves would have an encounter with Jesus Christ such that they would grow to love Jesus. We can't manufacture that. We entrust our kids to the care of Jesus Christ. And as we pray for our kids and we pray for our families, we place the beliefs that we have about our families underneath the belief of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, what do you believe about our kids? What do you want for our children? Last two things are just money and time. Going to skip through these quickly. There's a lot more to say, but money. What does the world tell us about money? What are the belief systems that are there about money? right? You make sure that you have your 401k together. You make sure that your Roth IRAs together. You make sure that you've got all of your savings accounts and your HSA and your this and your that and your that and everything. And it's up to you. Your security is in how much you can store away, how much you can save for college. But what if we invited Jesus into that place to transform how we think about money. So that when we look at our finances and we look at our budget, we say, Jesus, how do you want us to steward what you've entrusted to us? Because that's this belief. I worked, I've got this, I've received this inheritance. So the belief system is that it's mine. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't believe that. As followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that we are stewards of that. We're stewards of that. There was one time where I was really wrapped up in money, really worried about it, really worried about it. And I was spending a lot of time thinking about the stock market. 
thinking about the stock market, thinking about investing, you know, reading all those like investment things that you read and all that kind of stuff. I was worried about it. I was thinking about it. It was on my mind. That's one thing that you can test. What do you believe? What do you believe is this? What do you spend your time thinking about the most? What do you spend your time worrying about the most? Okay? And bring that under Jesus Christ. Well, I was thinking about money a lot. I was thinking about the stock market a lot. And, you know, you can kind of tell when you're kind of doing something too much, and it's just like, man, this is not healthy. This is not healthy. But I wasn't completely sure because I was kind of playing games a little bit with my conscience, playing, a little, playing some games a little bit with God. And I'm like, well, God, maybe you really do want me to spend three or four hours a day looking at the stock market because really I can, I can really do a lot of good with that money. And I said, but I'm just going to put a fleece out. I'm just going to test and say, if I'm spending way too much time thinking about the stock market, I'm going to say, today, God, have someone mention the word stock market in normal conversation. Now, I found that when God, when I pray these prayers about trying to be more faithful, God usually answers these questions, answers these prayers. So I went over to somebody's house. We were having a ministry event at their house, and it was a really beautiful house, and we were there. And I said, man, man, this is a beautiful house. Now, no one ever says this word to me at all, stock market. But we are in the house, and I'm there early, and and I said, wow, this is a beautiful house. Thank you so much for letting us have our ministry event here. And the woman says, oh, yeah, yeah, it's actually my parents' house. My parents are really generous. And I said, oh, well, that's fantastic. I'm so glad they're generous. What's the story? And she says, well, you know, my dad's been working and stuff like that. But all of a sudden, this happened. All of a sudden, he came into a lot of money through the stock market. And I went, oh my gosh, I should go back home and research the stock market. (laughs) No! I went back and I said, God, is this really you? It's the first time I'd heard anyone ever say, stock market. And I prayed, and I said, God, you know this money, this finance thing, it's got to be yours. I got to bring this under you. I got to bring this under you. Last thing I want to say is time. Our time. Same thing like money. How do we steward our time? What do we do with our time? People, when I talk to them, man, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm doing this. 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 One thing I'd like to suggest is maybe out there we're believing that a belief system is I'm doing all these things out there because I believe at some level all these things out there are going to satisfy me. I'm doing all these activities out here because that's what I think I need. And instead, if we bring our time under Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ invites us to come away with him. Scripture tells us in Psalms, be still and know that I am God. Scripture doesn't say, be engaged in phrenic activity and you will know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And pray about how we should spend our time. Actually say, God, my time is yours. What do you want me to do with my time? What do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with all that you've given me? 
I'm going to share this one last story, and then this will wrap it up. There was a time when I was trying to figure out what to do with my time and really what to do with my life. So I went to school at Berkeley, and I studied zoology, but my real passion was entomology. And if you know what entomology is, can I just see a quick show of hands? Who knows what entomology is? Oh my gosh. If you've just raised your hands, thank you very much, Daniel Kim. I saw that hand. Thank you. If you raise your hands, you know that entomology is a very, very nerdy thing to do. (laughs) Entomology is the study of insects, bugs. It's actually insects. Um, And I'd love to talk to you about insects. I love insects. This was the plan for my life. I was going to study zoology at Berkeley, which, by the way, is the number one entomology school in the nation. You've got you to know that. That's very important. If you don't remember anything from this sermon, remember that. Okay, the number two school in the nation is Cornell. Cornell University, number two school in entomology in the world. So this was my plan for my life. I was going to go to Berkeley, study zoology. Then I was going to go to Cornell for graduate school and study entomology, get a master's. Then I was going to come back to Berkeley and get my PhD and be the bug doctor. <laughs> Work there. That's what I was going to do. That's my plan. That's what I was going to do. That's what I was going to do. But then, while I was a student in the summers, I started working in youth ministry. And then I started working in inner-city youth ministry, and I went out to Philadelphia. And I worked out in inner-city ministry in Philadelphia. But that was my plan. I was like, I'm just going to do this for summer, give some time, and then come back. But while I was out in Philadelphia, and I had actually, you know, I was getting close to graduation, about to finish, I took some time away. And I prayed. And I said, God... What do you want me to do with my time? What do you want to do with my time? I'm 20. What should I do? And I just opened that up. And when I was out in Philadelphia, I got the sense that for this next season, maybe not forever, but maybe for this next season, I should take the time while I can to stay in Philadelphia and to continue to work with inner city kids. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And that began a a, a journey of 20 years of ministry. So what am I saying? What's the point? What's the point around time? Is my point that everybody should go into full-time ministry? No. That's not the point. My point is this. We all have the same amount of time. 24 hours in the day, 7 days a week, 12 months in the year. What is God wanting to do with your time? When God says here, what's the work of God? What do we have to do? It's to believe in the one whom he has sent to believe in Jesus. It means that we, over, under, over everything else, that Jesus, over everything else, we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. And then everything, our work, our relationships, our kids, our money, our time, everything comes underneath that. And we invite Jesus to speak into those places. We invite Jesus and the belief in Jesus to speak into the beliefs that we have, that compete with Jesus. 
and we say, Jesus, how are you leading us? What do you want us to do? Because at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Jesus Christ is the only one that will satisfy us. Jesus Christ wants us to have full life. And I'm convinced that when we bring all of these other areas under Jesus Christ, it's scary, but he's trustworthy and he's good. Corey Ten Boom, she's a Dutch Christian. Some of you might know her. Her famous book is The Hiding Place. She um, was, her story is she and her family were hiding Jews during the Holocaust. They were, they were Dutch Christians hiding Jews during World War II. And Corrie Ten Boom was imprisoned for that. But Corrie Ten Boom says this, and this is the last thing I'll say. Corrie Ten Boom says, I've learned in my life to hold things loosely. All those things in the world that say it's up to us, it's up to us. We have to do it. We have to make it happen. Corey Ten Boom has said, I've learned to hold things loosely because in my journey with Jesus Christ, if I'm not holding something loosely, it becomes so painful when Jesus opens up my fingers to be able to receive him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you so much that you call us, you invite us into a full life in you. I thank you, God, that all of these things in our lives, our work, our relationships, our money, our time, are all, God, under you. And you, God, call us to believe in you above everything else. Jesus, I ask that if there's people here, maybe right now, where you are bringing up something in our hearts, something we need to give you about our work, something we need to give you about our relationships, we need to entrust our kids to you. We need to give you our money. We need to give you our time. God, I pray that you would be gentle with us and invite us into a deeper trust in you because we give this belief over to you, that we give all the beliefs that we hold over to you so that we can take hold of a belief in you as our Lord and Savior. And let us trust you and know your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.